Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America. Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we're going to tackle two big issues. Uh, Tomorrow morning, Rod Rosenstein, the former Deputy Attorney General, the man who gave us Robert Mueller's special investigation and who signed the fourth and perhaps most flawed of the FISA warrants targeting the Trump campaign, is going to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I'm going to give you an overview and uh, take a look at the body of evidence that has emerged in the last week or two. Extraordinary evidence that really gives us some sense of the number of times the FBI, the Justice Department, could have stopped, should have stopped, and ended the investigation for a lack of evidence, for uh, an abundance of warnings that what was going on was a political operation, not a counterintelligence or criminal investigation. We're going to take a look at those pieces of evidence. We think it's important and, uh, and walk through six instances where the FBI and DOJ blew past a stop sign and should have ended the investigation. And on the front of what's going on with Minneapolis and around the country with the rioting, the insurgency, the violent protests that are occurring, we're going to talk to two people who have done a lot of thinking, who have tracked Uh, These sort of protests, these sort of riots, these sort of uh, civil disobedience and unrest um, uh, from Rodney King all the way to the present moment in Minneapolis. And uh, that will be the former chief of Ferguson, Missouri, uh, Chief Tom uh, Jackson, and a former St. Louis County police officer who later went on to work for the CIA, Del Wilbur. And they have an interesting perspective, which is that the future of American police law enforcement, particularly dealing with these type of episodes where a tragedy like what happened in Minneapolis uh, with George Floyd results in civil unrest and rioting and criminal activity. Uh, Both of these men think it's time for police departments and the intelligence apparatus of these police law enforcement uh, units to start to treat these uh, protests like insurgencies. And we're going to talk to both of them, sort of adapting the military's mindset with a social media and a communication standpoint, a security uh, provisioning. Uh, It's a fascinating conversation by two men who have done a lot of thinking to uh, look back at the past moments in our history where civil unrest was unleashed and what we can do to change it going forward. So we're going to have both of those uh, when we come back from the commercial break. First up, Rod Rosenstein, Russia. Guess what? It's time to talk about all the times the FBI should have stopped the investigation. We'll be right back after this commercial break. 
All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Um, one thing that people ask me all the time, how can we help Just the News succeed? How can we uh, help do more like a podcast like John Solomon Reports or get more investigative reporters out there to do accountability reporting? And the uh, question is, one way you can do it is by going to the brand new Just the News store we created. It's called JTNShop.com. That's JTN for Just the News. JTNShop.com. We have all sorts of gadgets, great gifts for dad for Father's Day. Uh, and if you buy something there, some of those proceeds will come back to support the Just the News uh, reporting team and uh, the Just the News podcast team. So a very simple, quick way to help us out. We have lots of great gifts. My favorite one is the Clean Phone Pro that you stick your, your cell phone, your germy cell phone after a long day's work into this little device and UV rays disinfected and it comes out clean and charged and uh, you can put it to your face and not worry about whether there's a bacteria, virus, or germ on it. Um, Airbuds for your, your favorite devices, uh, all sorts of amazing products that I'm very proud of and uh, they're good products for you. We have good prices, we think, and if you buy something, you'll be helping us at JTN Shop. You'll be helping us do more journalism at justthenews.com. So I just want to mention that. Now I'm going to turn my attention to, well, reporting, like I promised. So, tomorrow, the man who appointed the Russia Special Prosecutor, Bob Mueller, and who signed the last and likely most flawed of the four Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants targeting Trump campaign during the Russia probe, is going to take the witness stand. Yep, former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is going to be on the hot seat tomorrow. And... Um, What's interesting is, uh, as a prelude to his appearing, he's already issued a statement, and, and it sort of hints at where I think he's going to end up tomorrow, which is portraying himself as a victim of an incompetent or corrupt FBI. He uh, actually issued this statement. Listen to this. Quote, even the best law enforcement officers make mistakes, and some engage in willful misconduct, close quote. So let's see if tomorrow he actually acknowledges what mistakes were the FBI's, what willful misconduct was the FBI's, and whether he takes any of the blame himself. Um, as I look at this, he's got some very important questions to answer, including did he participate in the 25th Amendment scheme, the idea that uh, Andy McCabe apparently discussed with him about wearing a wire on the president to build a case that the president should be removed from office under the 25th Amendment, and whether he would today appoint Robert Mueller given all that he learned about the FBI's misconduct and whether he would have signed the fourth uh, FISA warrant, given all that he's learned about the flaws in the FBI investigation. Those are some of the most important questions. But we had Matt Gates on this show last week, and he said something very profoundly, which was throughout the course of the Russia investigation, there were several opportunities, several moments where uh, the investigation should have stopped, should have paused, should have said, you know what, we got nothing, let's shut it down. And each time the FBI and the Justice Department failed to do so. So I wanted to um, pull those moments out briefly for you and just talk about some of them because I think they're going to come up tomorrow in the larger context of the Rosenstein hearing. But let's start with the first time the FBI might have wanted to consider shutting down the Russia probe. And I say it's the day it started, July 31st, 2016. Why is that? Well, last month, the conservative watchdog group Judicial Watch got a hold of the unredacted original FBI electronic communication that opened up Crossfire Hurricane, the Russia investigation. And what it showed was that the Pete Strzok, the FBI agent running the case, 
believed that George Papadopoulos violated the Foreign Agent Registration Act governing foreign lobbying because he had a discussion with foreigners about whether Russia had some dirt like emails on Hillary Clinton that they could release and help Donald Trump. Well, the memo shows that the information was at best a third-hand suggestion. It wasn't probable cause information. It wasn't reasonable evidence. It was a third-hand suggestion of a suggestion, in fact. Uh, and that the memo failed to identify a specific violation of the FARA Act, uh, the, the law that they were claiming they were investigating. Normally, when you predicate an investigation at the FBI, you're supposed to identify the specific violations. This memo didn't do so. And then it further expressed doubt about what the Russians really were up to and whether Trump would even consider accepting any help from them. That level of uncertainty, that level of non-compliance with the FBI uh, regulations, According to the experts I talked to, meant the FBI should have never opened up the investigation to start. It should have been shut down the moment the memo came in. Listen to Kevin Brock, the former chief intelligence officer for the FBI. He said, quote, there is nothing in the electronic communication that meets the traditional thresholds for opening up a FARA or a counterintelligence investigation. In other words, the probe should never have even started. So that's the first time it should have shut down. Time number one, opportunity number one missed. Now, the second time the FBI should have shut it down, uh, based on all the reporting I've done, is at, in the late summer of 2016, uh, they had already run informants, confidential human sources, up against two of the key players, Papadopoulos and Carter Page. We know them both well. We talk about them often on this show. Well, during those conversations, both men made exculpatory statements, extremely important exculpatory statements, unwittingly to the uh, undercover informants, and those statements undercut the very concerns, the very core allegations the FBI claimed it was investigating. And you know what? That, according to a lot of the experts I talked to, should have been the second moment they shut things down. And if they didn't shut it down, they should have at least divulged to the FISA court, hey, we have these series, but these guys have been run up against informants, and they've denied it unwittingly to the informants, and neither of those happened. And, and let's take even a a more recent thing we learned about just to show at that second moment after the intercepts what the FBI had in its uh, possession, significant evidence of innocence without shutting down the case. But Andy McCabe, the former FBI director, said that on the core issue that they opened the entire investigation on, that George Papadopoulos might be conspiring with Russians to get dirt on Hillary Clinton, McCabe told Congress in late 2017 that almost from the start, the FBI did not believe Papadopoulos had the sort of contacts with the Russians to carry out a plan. In other words, they didn't think he was in the uh, commission of a crime because he didn't have the ability to commit the crime. When those intercepts came in with that perception that the FBI had, that was the second opportunity missed to shut down the investigation. Now, third time is when the first derogatory information starts coming in about Christopher Steele. Because remember, Christopher Steele and his dossier are the primary basis for the FISA warrant in October 2016, the permission to spy on a Trump campaign in the final weeks of the election that the FBI obtained. Well, let's remember that by October, by the time they did that, the FBI knew that Steele was leaking to the news media, that he had a political bias, that he was desperate, according to Bruce Orr, to uh, defeat Trump in the election, that he had passed uh, suspect information to the State Department, uh, that the Delta control file that the U.S. intelligence community had on Steele 
had a red flag going back to 2015 that he was susceptible to Russian disinformation. So they had all of this uh, red flag warnings, all of this derogatory information. And instead of stopping the investigation and saying, whoa, slow down, let's not do this, they went ahead anyways. And they falsely represented to the FISA Corp. They had no derogatory information on Steele. Simply not true. The FBI files were filled with derogatory information, red flags, concerns about Steele. That was a, a third moment when we should have shut the investigation down and then we failed. Now, the fourth moment, when they go beyond derogatory information, I mean, things that weigh against the credibility of Steele, they actually get proof that some of the information, much of the information in the Steele dossier is either uncorroborable, meaning they can't prove it, or it has been directly disproven and traced to Russian disinformation. Remember those documents we talked about a few weeks ago? When they found out that the, the Steele dossier, the undercore the pinning, underpinnings, the core information supporting the FISA warrant was Russian disinformation and that Steele's primary subsource had disowned, uh, denied saying some of the things that were attributed to him. The FBI should have put that uh, case on a spike and called it over. The fourth time we missed an opportunity under the FBI's normal rules, the way they would normally conduct investigation, they would have shut it down, except this was no normal investigation. It was being run by the higher-ups on the seventh floor of the FBI. And once again, they kept the investigation going. They kept the FISA court in the dark about the extraordinary revelations and problems with the Steele dossier. And that's how we ended up with a three-year investigation into a big nothing burger. All right. The fifth time that the FBI had an obligation to stop, to pause, maybe to shut the whole thing down. Well, how about August of 2016 and then many times after that when the CIA said, hey, fellas, that guy Carter Page that you're investigating as a possible Russian spy, he's not a Russian spy. He's one of us. He's an operative working for the CIA. August 17th, 2016, the Crossfire Hurricane, hurricane Team, yeah, Pete Stroke, he was told and the whole team was told that Carter Page had been approved as an operational contact for the CIA starting in 2008. In other words, they were investigating a good guy. There was no reason to believe he was a spy. And what did the FBI do again? Nope, they didn't shut it down. They kept it going and they hid the CIA's information from the court. How did they do that? An FBI lawyer actually falsified a document that was used to support the court application. A criminal act when you falsify a document before a court proceeding, obstruction of justice. Um, that is the fifth time that the FBI should have pumped the brakes and shut this thing down, and they didn't. All right, the last and sixth time is one that we've talked a lot about the last couple of weeks, and it deals with the whole Mike Flynn arm of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. It had its own code name, uh, Crossfire Razor, meaning a, a more sub-slice, a sub-slice of the Crossfire Hurricane. Well, on January 4th, 2017, that's two weeks before Trump took office, five months before we get Bob Mueller named a special prosecutor, the FBI agents who looked at Michael Flynn for five months looking for possible ties to Russia, illicit counterintelligence threats, criminality, well, they concluded there was none and that they wanted to shut the case down. And once again, shut the case down was the actual recommendation of the career agents, but did it happen? Nope. The FBI, once again, Pete Strzok, the seventh floor, James Comey, Andy McCabe, they all intervened and they kept the case open and they pivoted to the idea that we're going to interview Mike Flynn about something for which they had no concern. And it's that interview and the conversations leading up to that interview 
that cre created the famous handwritten notes by the former assistant director, William Priestap, Bill Priestap, in which he wondered aloud to himself, are we playing games with Mike Flynn? Are we simply trying to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired? By the way, that's not the job of the FBI. That's a policy dispute, a personnel dispute, not a law enforcement and counterintelligence matter. So once again, career FBI official says, shut it down. The FBI leadership keeps it going. And that is the sixth and perhaps most egregious of all the examples of when the FBI should have shut this probe down and failed to do so. When we talked to Matt Gates last week, he said something kind of uh, profound. And I think I want to leave you with this thought as we go to the commercial break. When we come back, the former chief of Ferguson, Missouri, Tom Jackson, former uh, law enforcement officer in CIA operative Del Wilbur are going to talk to us about how we're going to deal with these riots, what lessons police have learned in the past, who are the instigators behind this likely in the future. Uh, we're going to talk about that, but I want to leave you with these, this one quote from Matt Gates about the six blown stop, stop signs that the FBI had, the six times the FBI should have shut the, F, uh, the Russia investigation down before Robert Mueller was even named a special prosecutor. Here's what Matt had to say, Congressman Gates. There were continued renewals and there were continued affirmations of the legitimacy of this investigation long after the FBI knew it had corrupt origins and uh, political ambitions. Corrupt origins and political ambitions overruled the legitimate rules, the law and order reasons why an investigation should be shut or closed down. And that's something we all should expect Rod Rosenstein tomorrow to be questioned about and to answer because in his world, he signed the fourth and most flawed of the FISA warrants and he appointed a special prosecutor after nine months of an investigation where by Pete Strzok's own text messages at the time, we know what he said. There's no big there there. In other words, it was a nothing burger. It should have been shut down. So tomorrow, let's see what Rod Rosenstein has to say. And when we come back from the commercial break, we're going to pivot to the violence in Minneapolis and across the country, the riots. What tactics can we use? And can we learn something from the counterinsurgency strategies of the Pentagon in Iraq and Af Afghanistan to apply here in America? It's almost a scary thought to say that, but that's some of the things professional law enforcement people are talking about today, creating a counterinsurgency strategy for America's cops. Right when we come back from the commercial break. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews, and for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. 
All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, Chief Tom Jackson, the former police chief uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, who lived through the riots and, and then later wrote a very important book called Policing Ferguson, Policing America, What Really Happened and What the Country Can Learn From It. Chief Jackson, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on, John. Well, I greatly appreciate you you taking the time because you've you have a lot of experience in what uh, we're now witnessing in America and communities uh, uh, coast to coast. And I wonder if you could first just give us your top line assessment of what you've seen the last four or five days and 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 how it's maybe evolved since 2014 in the Ferguson crisis. Well, uh, what we're seeing right now is is total anarchy, and we had that in Ferguson. It wasn't as widespread as it is here. Um, we did have. Uh, riots and protests in other parts of the country. But right now, what seems like is organized uh, anarchy. Um, these these folks seem to be well-coordinated and um, well-funded. I, I think there's uh, some sort of logistic support going on here. Uh, this has really evolved into uh, into some, somewhat of an insurgency, really, that's, that's hiding behind uh, uh, protesters and people exercising their rights. So um, I'm not sure exactly what happened here, but I know the, the, the whole protest and the uh, anarchy movement sort of evolved during the months of riots in Ferguson. I don't know if people realize it, but we had uh, gunfire pretty much every night in Ferguson in what the press was calling peaceful protests. Um, but, uh, uh, but now uh, what we're seeing is, is seems very well organized and uh, uh, with an attempt to to tear down our major cities. Unreal. It really is. And it does seem as though outsiders um, are the instigators. So there, you know, there may be people in the community that have a legitimate grievance and, or a legitimate reason to protest, but they, they get infiltrated and then the violence starts. Is that sort of the pattern that you see? Yeah. um, And that was the pattern in, in Ferguson, Um, even as the, uh, the tactics and so forth of the, of the violent people evolved, what we would have is, uh, you know, people who legitimately believed that uh, an injustice was done uh, to Michael Brown. And so they were they were out there protesting. They had signs demanding certain things. But there were people that I, I could just walk up to and talk to them and have discussions about the process and, you know, things like that. You know, sometimes be small crowds, sometimes be big, but I could just stand in, in front of or among them and talk to them. Um, as the day on, more people would show up that clearly had uh, nefarious intent. And, uh, you know, as, as darkness came, you know, then the, the rocks would start flying and the bottles. And, and after a while, we heard gunfire. Um, so then uh, that seems to be more or less what's happening today. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. And it does seem to be the pattern. Last night starts peacefully. And then uh, as the night gets on, uh, the bricks start coming and and um, the Molotov cocktails and other other horrible devices that that really destroy the city. When you before you uh, you left Ferguson, did you have any visibility into uh, who these outsiders were? Who were these instigators? Uh, do they have names? Do they have groups? Do they have command centers? What did you learn about the insurgency? Yeah, so there were lots of different groups. Some of them were created in Ferguson. Um, uh, there were just a, a whole bunch of different groups that had their own names. Um, Black Lives Matter pretty much evolved. Uh, I know it was started in Florida, but it really uh, became what it is now in Ferguson. And it was a very violent uh, anti-police group, which was advocating violence against police. But there was also um, uh, several other 
groups, small groups that, that had names that, you know, escaped me for the moment. But uh, one investigative reporter did a, uh, did a story about the funding. And so a lot of these folks were actually being paid uh, to, to come to Ferguson and protest. And they were being paid by uh, different uh, social justice organizations that were in turn uh, funded by George Soros's organization. So you had these, uh, these groups that were hiring protesters. Matter of fact, I, I remember this was kind of funny. Uh, at one point, a couple of people came into the police station and uh, asked where they signed up for the protest to get paid. And of course, we told them that you know that they were in the wrong place. Yes, I, I would imagine they were. <laughs> wow! So that I mean, literally, it was a small business. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, and we had infighting between protesters who were just there, you know, to be part of the moment, and uh, the ones who were getting paid. And uh, that's one of the reasons why they didn't stop. You know, even even in poor weather, you know, there there'd be uh, you know twenty people out front of the station at ten o'clock at night. And I'd, I'd go out there and ask them, you know, well, why are you guys still here? And they said, we're getting paid 15 bucks an hour. So they never stopped. And that's, I, that's what's going on, I think, here. Uh, not, the, not the majority of the people. You know, a lot of them are just young, uh, you know, idealistic kids that are out there. And, and, of course, as in Ferguson, you know, as the, the protests went on, it became sort of like Woodstock. You know, everybody wanted to come. And be part of the history that was Ferguson, and so now there's a lot of people that are just going to want to go out and be part of the the history is uh, you know that it's the George Floyd protests, but behind that is what seems like a uh, you know a very targeted, organized, uh, funded group of insurgents that are you know now uh, shooting police officers. We had. Actually, four police officers shot here in St. Louis last night, and one retired police captain was murdered. Yeah, and I know they uh, there was a um, officer struck by a car in Buffalo, an officer shot in New York, and uh, I think another one on the West Coast too. So it was a very violent night targeting the men and women in blue, which uh, is never a good night. So, yeah, there's no doubt that um, this is is going to keep escalating. I'm struck as I read your book. Uh, about how much the media portrayed one story early on and then when all the facts come out, which often emerge very slowly in an investigation like this, how the story evolves and what what did you learn through that process? I mean, there are the you know, there's the flashpoint of the shooting and, and the immediate aftermath. Then there's the Justice Department uh, investigation report that was very incendiary. And then the FBI comes in at the end of the day and, and, and determines that it's a justified shooting. Walk through how facts evolve so slowly and how that can change the, the story as time goes on. Well, um, when, when it first all broke, when the shooting first happened, uh, you know, I was on the scene within an hour or so, and it was very chaotic. And uh, the, there, was, there was gunfire going on, which made it hard to process the scene. There were a couple of three times that the shots rang out. But um, while all this was going on and while I was there at the scene, working the scene, talking to the crowd... The press was uh, back behind it all, and they were interviewing uh, Dorian Johnson, who was telling the story that, you know, Michael Brown had his hands in the air surrendering, saying, don't shoot, don't shoot. And uh, he was shot in cold blood right there in the middle of the street in broad daylight, which was completely untrue. But um, what we learned from that is because of social media, 
uh, that story didn't just go out locally over the local press, but it went uh, worldwide immediately. Um, and, and up until then, social media to us was, you know, letting people know what time the parade starts and when the party in the park is going to happen and what the hours are at City Hall and stuff like that, you know, just uh, keeping the public informed. Uh, we didn't realize the power that social media had to put out, uh, you know, false stories, lies. And this particular lie, we were never able to to get in front of it. Uh, first of all, we couldn't really talk about the the case because it was being investigated and it was in a grand jury and all the testimony was going to come out. We didn't know exactly what happened or how it went down other than, you know, what was told us by our officers. Um, but uh, so we had to wait it out. And the whole time I kept trying to talk to the public through the press um, as much as I could. And basically what I was trying to do is say what the process was. This, this is what's going on right now. And this is, you know, this is how we're going to find out what actually happened, you know, and we have to be patient. We have to wait. Well, meantime, the press, uh, a lot of the national media, too, was, um, you know, just camped out in town. And they're putting out uh, images of, you know, say police in riot gear and, you know, then like take a picture of somebody with their kid in the street there protesting and saying, how can this happen in America? when they knew that the police were in riot gear because sometime in the next couple of hours, they were going to be descended upon by hundreds of people who were going to be violent. Um, and they knew that, but they kept going with a peaceful protest with a few, you know, terrible people. And uh, so, uh, and, and politicians turned on us right away. Our own Senator Claire McCaskill uh, called us the militarized police and that our tactics were deplorable. Uh, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, um, when you're faced with a, a violent mob like what's going on now, there's really two ways you can break that up. You can break it up with physical force or you can use tear gas, which is safe. Nobody's ever died from the tear gas that we used. So um, what we were doing was safely breaking up violent protests on a pretty much nightly basis. And... Uh, and, and the thing about it is, during all that time, during four months of violent protests, um, we never critically injured anyone. We never really hurt anyone of those protests. So if we really wanted to do violence against the people, you know, we had the perfect opportunity. But we didn't. Sure. And just the opposite showed enormous restraint. Yeah, absolutely did. Um, but, you know, got no credit for that whatsoever because the narrative was already out there. Police were bad. Protesters were good, and uh, and that was all there is to it. Yeah, one of the learning lessons that you mentioned in the book is the um, and, and when I read it, I sometimes think of the early days of Dave Petraeus starting to develop the counterinsurgency strategy, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that police have to have like a multifaceted. If if an incident like this happens, you have to have a multifaceted response that includes, you know. Uh, uh, a communications component, a social media component, you know, a safety component. Um, has law enforcement changed that much now that in these incidents that we sort of almost have to develop the same sort of strategy that our military did? Well, they absolutely do. Um, you know, like I said, we we had no idea the the power of social media we do now. And it's, you know, it's how these folks are communicating, you know, in these riots. Um, and, and so the, the lessons were out there. They were uh, learned through Ferguson. Um, you know, and, and lots of people who were in Ferguson or studied Ferguson, you know, are going out and, and you know, talking about it. But um, 
the thing is, it doesn't seem like um, that those lessons are being uh, applied right now. Uh, this has gotten way, way out of hand. And uh, this, and of course, this is so much different too. In that, um, you know, the, the Michael Brown shooting was justified in the end, was found to be. But you know, prior to that, nobody knew for sure. Uh, so you know, they just went with the narrative that it was, you know, this horrible shooting. With this one, the whole country saw this. You know, I mean, the whole world saw it, and you know, everybody uh, pretty much agreed that they saw a man die you know in police custody watched it and so you know uh, there was sort of uh unified sadness over what happened and and uh you know a whole stretch of emotions by pretty much everybody but you know and then then they turned to these violent tactics and now we're in a, a place really where i don't think we've ever been yeah no i think if not certainly not since 1968 it's uh the level of violence is is unheralded and the fervor doesn't seem to be dying down as it often can after a few weeks so it's um it's going to be a challenge i i'm struck by another part of your book too because i think there's a lot of thought that you put into this about the future of community policing and how communities are going to have to get past these issues, how they build that trust. And I wonder if you could share a few minutes of wisdom of just as you look back now with, um, with 2020 vision, what sort of things police leaders, community leaders can do to ease these tensions, build that trust, build the respect that police officers should and, and used to get, uh, in, in these communities. Yeah. Well, one of the main things that, uh, I think I pointed out is that, uh, police officers are expected to do way too much of uh, uh, social uh, construction. You know, um, they have specific jobs and they are supposed to enforce the law and protect the public. Um, but we're not supposed to be parents to, to kids and, and uh, you know, raise them and teach them social skills, things like that. That's a, that's a parenting responsibility. And uh, what I think is, is, Leaders in the community have to look at what's broken down in uh, in uh, some of the poor communities and uh, address those issues directly, and not expect the the police department to address it. You know, it's it's sort of like uh, in Ferguson, um, we had the largest concentration of public housing in uh, in the state. I think right there in that little corner of Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely impossible for, you know, all those in a, uh, you know, a small town and a small police department to be completely responsible for everything that's going on in there. Uh, you know, there was so much violent crime in there and uh, so many calls for service. So, you know, it's, it was, it's just concentrated poverty and it's just got to be addressed. And, and the police can't, police departments alone can't address concentrated poverty. Uh, you know, we've got to educate our way out of this. Um, we've got to get back to, uh, you know, strong families or, or family type structures that, uh, that, uh, mentor and teach kids. And again, you know, the police can be part of that, but they can't be responsible for all of that. Yeah. That's a big thing. I, the officer becomes everything, you know, to, to the lost child, uh, you know, looking for their parent, their temporary parent figure, their, uh, um, a marriage counselor between a domestic violence incident. It's uh, the incredible circumstances that we, our offices are put into every day. And those who haven't worked the job don't understand 
the the constant struggle they have. One of the um, one of the things that's come up recently that I've I've heard a lot about, and and it came up actually, believe it or not, uh, in Minnesota shortly before this event, was that officers themselves feel under constant assault now that they have sort of a hyper vigilance. Some of them are taking wartime training to prepare them to be more hyper vigilant. How do we relieve some of the stress for the officers on the job too? I mean, they we 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 know the communities are stressed and they have their issues, but these officers are in a pressure cooker twenty four seven every time they they get in the car. What sort of things, as you look back, do you think officers need to kind of get through this sort of stressful environment that we've created for them? Well, it's it's a uh, it's a very difficult and uh, and complex question because um, they are under so much scrutiny and everything that they do now is being recorded. And law enforcement sometimes is is ugly, you know, and it doesn't look good on tape, even though it's been being done correctly. Um, and so uh, part of what's going to have to happen is uh, is uh, for really the press and for uh, for government and for elected officials to be uh, pro pro law enforcement to talk up the good stuff that the the police are doing and, and, and highlight, you know, good actions that they see, you know, when the officers do a good thing, which is all of the time, most of the time. Um, but we, we need to have more, more of the, the media and more of elected officials really talking well to their, their constituents, um, about the police, you know, talk about them as a positive thing. You know, we support our police department, we support our police officers. Um, but the, the stress that they're under is just going to continue because, um, you know, as long as they're being uh, hyper scrutinized, uh, it's it's just going to it's going to continue to be a more more and more stressful job. And ultimately, what you're going to have is uh, is officers doing less of the uh, of the direct contact, less proactive policing, which then in turn gives you uh, you know a less safe environment. That really is the consequence. You just sort of shut down and you try to avoid any episode that you can because that's the only way to survive. And that's not going to be good for law enforcement under any circumstance. Yeah. The um, I want to wrap up with one question because I, I obviously consider myself part of the media profession, but I'm often a critic of watching some of my colleagues in action and uh, the lack of balance, the lack of uh, and the in- incredible intrusion of opinion and emotion that reporters sometimes bring to covering events where they should be neutral. How big an impact did the news media have in inflaming or affecting uh, the Ferguson uh, story? Oh, they had a they had a huge effect because you know, as you know, you're you're in the business. It's a twenty four hour news cycle. Yeah, there has to be news going on. 24 seven. So this became something easy for them because we had protesters in the street or in, you know, hiding out in churches or, uh, you know, other places that were sheltering them while they were waiting to, to go out and do their damage. But, uh, they, they didn't really have to do any work. They could just walk out into the street with a camera, film something, interview some protester and get his, his grievance and, uh, and just air it. So we were getting raw footage of people saying, you know, how terribly they were treated by the police. And then in turn, you know, putting uh, dramatic images of, uh, you know, what looked like over-policing and what it really was, was, uh, you know, very, very good policing that was going on. So they had a huge impact. 
Not as much as social media, though. That was the inflamer, right? You really walk away with that impression. You know, I walked away from that impression uh, profoundly after reading your book. It, uh, it is a um, social media is the new fuel, isn't it? Yeah, and and big part of the reason is that they that there's no rules. Uh, like you, if you go out and do a story, you're probably going to have an editor that's going to approve it, and you're going to have to fact check it, and you know, uh, and all that stuff. There's no rules for these guys. They can create whatever they want. Uh, film whatever they want it, and it's you know it's going out over the air as they're creating it um so a lot of the uh, a lot of the mainstream you know and uh, uh cable media was playing catch up with uh the uh, social media warriors mm, fascinating and as you look out uh will will police departments even as small as ferguson and as big as the nypd are they going to have to have a counter messaging strategy on social media in order to survive in this world? Yes, absolutely. And that's, uh, that's one of the things that, you know, as I was going around the country talking uh, to various groups, I was trying to advocate that um, no police department, Ferguson size, or even much bigger uh, can just staff a social media group um, that can, just be on, on hand in case something like this happens and, you know, and then aggressively counter it. Uh, places like New York City can, LAPD and, and so forth. Um, but what what uh, I, I was kind of recommending is having like a major case squad of social media people who could be called up, you know, either as volunteers or, you know, uh, and and uh, attack the, uh, the social media attacks on the police so that, uh, you know, for everything that... Uh, that the streamers are putting out the the police department is putting out uh, the truth, you know, and, and its own, its own storyline so that uh, you can at least fight back. That is remarkable that we've reached that stage in our, our, our law enforcement law and order society that we have to have that operation, but it seems almost essential. I mean, I see it at the white house where reporters report wrong things. And then the white house press secretary has to come out and, uh, and correct the record and shame the reporters and get the actual facts out. And I think uh, that's going to become an important part of public communications in in the law enforcement ream for sure. That's one of the, that big takeaways I had from your book. Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, sir. Well, I, um, I know you've been through a lot and you, uh, you have a lot of wisdom because you took a lot of time afterwards to reflect and try to, to take lessons and, and learnings from it and then share that with the public. And I'm so grateful you came today, chief and, and shared it with us at uh, John Solomon reports. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate talking to you. You too. Okay, folks, we'll be right back for, uh, after this commercial break. Folks, if you get your wallet stolen or your cell phone or your car, we know what it is. It's old-fashioned theft. It's crime. We know it. Criminals now have a new way to steal our most valuable asset, our homes. Older Americans are most vulnerable to these types of thefts, and that's because they more often own their homes outright. An 88-year-old Florida woman recently discovered that scammers forged her signature, created a fake deed to her home, and then took her property. Those who buy a property from a deed theft scammer often become victims as well. What can you do to protect yourself? It's simple. My good friends at Home Title Lock provide the premier detection technology to protect your home 
in its title. The instant they detect an activity or something suspicious, they mobilize to help shut it down. We won't know a thief took us off our title until it's too late. That's why Title Lock jumps into action right away. The titles to all our homes are easily found online. A criminal or renter, even a family member, can simply forge your signature on a home sale form. Then he or she refiles as the new owner and bam, your home is not in your name and all of a sudden debts are being taken out against it. That's why Home Title Lock is my choice. Find out for free when you use my code JUSTNEWS at sign up. You'll get a free comprehensive scan of your home's title and 30 days of legendary home title lock protection free. So go to hometitlelock.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's the promo code JUSTNEWS at hometitlelock.com. Go there today. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Just a few minutes ago, you heard from Chief Tom Jackson, the former chief in Ferguson in Missouri. And now we're going to bring you to St. Louis and a former St. Louis police officer, Del Wilbur, who later went on to work for the CIA. Del, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I was a St. Louis County police officer. Uh, uh, actually worked uh, with Tom Jackson when he was a St. Louis County police officer before he went on to bigger and better things. How about that? What a small world. Yeah. So uh, you've been watching a lot of what uh, has transform, uh, uh, t- transpired the last few weeks, or last few, at least at least last week since uh, the incident in Minnesota. What do you what do you see, and what has evolved about the tactics of the protesters, the rioters from Ferguson? Well, uh, one thing is is certain is that uh, there was a plan in place for uh, you know for the civil unrest that we're we're seeing right now. Uh, I'm convinced that uh, uh, probably uh, lessons learned on the on the part of the the protesters, not the protesters, the rioters. Let's let's differentiate between the two, because certainly uh, everyone has the right to to peacefully protest, and and certainly there's reason to in this particular case. But but I think the uh, the situation that occurred in Ferguson, and then you know compare it to now, is that uh, there was a plan in place. I think. Uh, the the rioters, uh, the people that are in those organizations, uh, learn their lessons from Ferguson, and they uh, established a a working uh, plan that they were going to implement in anticipation of some uh, event occurring that would give them the opportunity to uh, to implement it and uh, and and move things forward. Yeah, there's no doubt when we talk to the frontline officers and the intel departments at NYPD, D.C., uh, there's clearly a command and uh, control structure and, uh, and a plan that was developed long before these days to, to uh, create this civil unrest. Um, when I was talking to Chief Jackson, uh, he, he had some profound comments about how police departments going forward are going to have to address this, and that includes treating them much like the military treats insurgencies you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that includes sort of a multifaceted approach, including a social media component and a communications program. And uh, and then, of course, the security components that we're, we're seeing play out. Um, you've been on both sides of this as a, a law enforcement officer and then as a, as a CIA um, asset and operative. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the similarities of the insurgencies? Well, yeah, I mean, they're they're certainly operating uh, uh, from the same playbook in a sense. And, you know, one thing to look at is is there is definitely a logistical aspect to this. Uh, you know, when, when you see reports of uh, days before uh, a planned protest, uh, 
stacks of bricks being delivered to uh, key locations, uh, you know, across cities and that. Uh, that tells you right there that somebody somewhere has, has again, had a plan in place on what they're going to do uh, in the event the, the opportunity presents itself to, to riot, uh, and then how they're going to support those riots by providing the materials uh, that are going to be needed. And that's exactly what happened in this case. We've seen report after report, uh, photographs of stacks of large stones or bricks or whatever that have been strategically placed, you know, in the uh, probably the pre-planned routes that uh, uh, protesters were going to to take or to, you know, set up in. So, uh, so there's a logistical aspect of this that that certainly could, needs to be looked into and could provide some uh, uh, some very useful intelligence uh, as to you know how this is being uh, coordinated and uh, and choreographed. And that's been one of the keys, right? When we when we learned that uh, when General Petraeus started to develop the counterinsurgency strategy for Afghanistan and Iraq, one of the uh, primary topics beyond communications and psyops and community relations was uh, uh, choking off the logistical facilitators of violence. And uh, our police department's going to have to be in a position now to be thinking about that at the front end, which is an incident happened. We may have protests. Let's look for those. Uh, right away, look for those logistical organizers and try to choke them off. Yeah, absolutely. And as as Chief uh, Jackson, you know, probably mentioned, uh, the uh, you know social media obviously is is an important um, part of their uh, their uh, operations and that to to quickly be able to rally people to a location or to uh, to an incident. And I, I'm certain that. Uh, that there may be, you know, in each city, uh, key individuals who are on a phone chain, who, um, you know, are able to uh, receive calls from, you know, whomever the ultimate authority is, and uh, and then, you know, in in re, you know uh, follow up to, uh, you know, to make their phone calls to to lower ranking individuals in their structure, and uh, so I mean that uh, I think is certainly going on. And in your work, have you been able to identify uh, since the Ferguson uh, uh, tragedy the the players, the infrastructures, the the groups that are the facilitators? Is there any um, clarity among police agencies about who the likely outside external organizers are of these events? Well, I mean, I can't speak for you know to uh, to what the law enforcement intelligence uh, uh, people have you know have been able to uncover uh, in the. Uh, intervening years, but uh, I can just offer my opinion. And I, I certainly, obviously, uh, Antifa has has been a, uh, a problem for quite a few years now. And, uh, you know, I, I would would equate that. I grew I'm a child of the 60s. I grew up in, uh, you know, during the Vietnam protests, everything. And when the uh, uh, SDS and the, uh, the Weather Underground were, you know, creating havoc uh, across the United States, and uh, I think probably some of those old radicals uh, are are certainly providing uh, uh, encouragement and uh, and inspiration to to some of the uh, uh, some of the new you know group of uh, uh, you know rioters that we have out there now. And the um, what as you look at it from a strategic lens, what are the the tactics going forward that police departments and law enforcement and prosecutors are going to have to 
be prepared to use, not, not just in crowd control and violence, but in sort of the intelligence capacity that, um, I, you know, helps uh, unravel these sort of uh, mazes that you're trying to navigate in the middle of violence. Um, are there are there certain ta tactics, certain uh, approaches that you think are going to become more regular in the police department regimen? Well, I mean, I'm sure they're already doing it, but uh, but they need to to uh, increase their intelligence capabilities. And you know, when when you talk about this, then all of a sudden, you know, the civil libertarians start throwing up red flags and everything, but. But there is a, a place for intelligence uh, capabilities within law enforcement, and uh, you're not, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have to use the, the capabilities that, that are out there, which are, you know, there are technical capabilities in that that, that certainly would require, you know, a, a warrant and, uh, you know, and a judge signing off on, on their application somewhere. But, but you're going to have to use, you're going to have to infiltrate some of these networks and that you're going to have to identify who who are members and start to uh, uh, be able to take action, you know, to take them down when they're in the planning stages uh, before they actually hit the streets after, you know, an incident happens or whatever. So, you know, intelligence is going to be what is going to drive this, this effort to try to, to bring this, these situations, you know, under control and hopefully prevent them in the future. Yeah, that seems that when I talked to Chief Jackson, that was one of the big learnings he took away from Ferguson, which is sort of having a pre proactive intelligence game plan. And then, um, you know, he talked about two other forces that distort and, and disrupt uh, the ability of the police to react to this, and that is social media and then the news media. As you look out, how big a uh, problem is the news media in the way they cover these riots? Well, it, it certainly uh, it's been a problem, I, at least in my estimation, uh, with the news media for, for many years now is the, the sensationalism factor. Uh, sometimes it seems that they try to outdo each other with how they portray an event to generate more viewers. So, you know, if you can throw in a little bit more action and uh, a little bit more sensationalism, you know, people may switch over to your channel instead of watching the other one. So I think that's something that people in the media are going to have to take a look at themselves and do, do a, a, a real, you know, kind of a self self search on that. You know, the other thing is that people I think are not really aware of is our, our adversaries in the world are certainly uh, supportive of what's taking place because it distracts us as a nation from perhaps other things that, uh, that we do in the, uh, you know, I, I can tell you from experience that, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that the agency, uh, has done, you know, over years is, um, uh, for decades, you know, is, and, and has been done against us. And that is, uh, covert influence operations, trying to, to get, uh, news stories or develop uh, uh, a rumor campaign or something of that nature, which will help inflame a situation and, and create, you know, problems for, you know, for your enemies. I mean, we've done it, you know, to, in other parts of the world and they, they certainly are doing it to us. That's a great point. Yeah. And, and, uh, did, uh, and, and all the work you've seen, um, is there any link between uh, foreign adversaries and some of these uh, revolutionary 
um, anarchist groups that are now behind some of these protests over the last few years. In your CIA experience, in your law enforcement experience, did you ever find any connection between them? Well, I mean, I can, I can only speak from, you know, historically is, is that we did, you know, certainly back during the Vietnam era, we knew uh, there was, was uh, direct links between uh, some of the activists and that and what was taking place back in that era and in the former, you know, uh, Soviet Union, uh, uh, they they were, if not actively supporting, uh, then through third parties, they were, you know, they were uh, uh, providing uh, support to the, uh, you know, to the the rioting and that. And and I would I would certainly believe that that's going on right now. That there is, you know, that there are links. Uh, they may be false flag operations. Uh, you know that 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 is is a tactic that uh, you know that is used. So uh, that that could be very well going on right now, and I, I'm I would be surprised if it's not. The as you uh, look at the issue of uh, the battle between the need for police to keep people safe and the the uh, perceived grievances in these communities with their law enforcement agencies, what what tactics uh, going forward are going to be important for sort of healing and getting past some of the issues of distrust and, and on the other side, disrespect, because officers often feel disrespected. How, how do we, we start to make some inroads on this dynamic of distrust and, and disrespect? Well, that's that's a, a tough nut to crack. I'm sure Chief Jackson and, and uh, many other uh, police uh, administrators around the country are, are scratching our heads right now, because if you if you think about it, if you recall back after Ferguson, after the Baltimore riots, uh, a lot of police uh, agencies uh, started implementing kind of a warm and fuzzy approach, you know, where, you know, police officers were were doing things truthfully that they had been doing all along, but they it was never, you know, received any publicity. And they started, you know, um, uh, actively promoting how police officers were helping people uh, in the community doing, like I said, these warm and fuzzy things. And I, I don't say that to mean any disrespect, but, but, uh, uh, but it obviously hasn't worked. I mean, all of that, all of that effort has gone right out the window uh, when there's an incident such as, such as what happened with George Floyd. So uh, all of the best intentions uh, can certainly, uh, you know, disappear uh, when when you have a bad situation so community outreach yeah it's a great uh, outreach yeah it's a great thing uh but is it you know it's not going to overcome uh, one of these uh, one of these tragic situations yeah particularly when there are external influences that are trying to inflame the emotions uh, beyond beyond the facts which is i guess what these the anarchists uh, are, are are focused on well, I want to thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. You've got some great experience both in the intelligence world and the law enforcement world, which brings a really great perspective. And um, I hope as these, um, as we learn more about what happened in Minnesota, we can get back to you and maybe have you on the show again. That sounds fine. Take care. Very good, sir. Thank you. All right, folks, that wraps up uh, another edition of John Solomon Reports. Uh, we'll be back with you on Thursday. History, economics, the great works of literature, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. Did you study these things in school? Probably not. Or even if you did, like I did, maybe it's time for a refresher. Time and technology have changed a lot of things, but they have not changed basic fundamental truths about the world and our place in it as America. 
That's why I'm so excited that Hillsdale College is offering more than 40 free online courses in the most important and enduring subject. You can learn about the works of C.S. Lewis, the stories in the book of Genesis, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution, the rise and fall of the Roman Republic, or the history of the ancient Christian church with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, you heard me, for free. You don't get anything free in the Biden economy today. I personally recommend you sign up for the American Citizenship and its Decline. It's with my good friend, the great historian, Victor Davis Hanson. In this eight-lecture course, VDH, as I like to call him, explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. The course is self-paced so that you can start whenever and wherever. So start your free course, American Citizenship and Its Decline, with my good friend, Victor Davis Hanson, today. How do you do that? Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash justnews to start. It's free, and it's easy to get started, and it's an easy URL to remember. All you got to do, go to hillsdale.edu slash justnews. One more time, hillsdale.edu slash justnews. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out. Higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it, with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now.